You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, June 15th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison, near Washington, D.C. But first, Jack Farley with a look at market stories. Jack? Thanks, Ash. Investors were bracing for a nosedive as they observed the futures plummet last night into the morning. But U.S. stocks have paired losses so far. And all three major U.S. indices are actually up on the day. The S&P 500 slid below its 200-day moving average on Thursday, and it remained there despite today's snapback. The put-to-call ratio slid down for the day, as did vol and volleyball, but all three remain elevated, indicating that investors are hedging their tail risk. Zooming in further into the options space, skew has gotten steeper. It's normally downward sloping for equities, but it's gotten more extreme. And we're not seeing as much of the volatility smile that characterized much of the bull run. In other news, the dollar slid down today, depreciating against most of the world's major currencies. But there's over $100 billion in currency swaps that expires just this week, and that could exert some upward pressure on the dollar as well. Meanwhile, oil staged a rebound with WTI and Brent both up on the day. But it could be too little too late for these small oil and gas producers who are levered to the hilt, many of whom have been pushed by wary lenders into selling all of their commodity risk up front. So this price appreciation isn't necessarily a panacea for them. Meanwhile, banks are slashing credit to producers as weaker players in the space are prepping for bankruptcy. JP Morgan recently forecasted that asset-backed loans to oil and gas producers could decrease by up to 30%. And the worst part is these companies might not get a bailout from the government as their borrowings only make up about 3.5% of the balance sheets of U.S. banks. So you've heard of too big to fail, but these companies might be too small to bail. A prime mover of all of this is, of course, COVID and the possibility of a second wave. Texas, North Carolina, California, and Florida are all showing alarming signs of growth of the virus. And today, the FDA revoked the use of hydroxychloroquine, even in emergencies. So there you have it. Equity staged a comeback as risk-on sentiment roared into full swing in FX. Oil rallied, but bankruptcy risk in the sector still looms, and the specter of a second wave of coronavirus haunts Wall Street and Main Street alike. The dominoes really are lining up. Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Especially interesting on the oil lending story. Ed, welcome back. Well, welcome back to you, actually, is more like it. Uh, I hope that you had a restful two days. You are. uh, You are correct. It is welcome back to me. It was very glamorous, Ed. I fixed my bathroom sink. (laughs) Let's hope it stays fixed. So, Ed, uh, today's credit write-downs. Thank you for the shout out, first of all, in the first line. I appreciated that. Uh, but when you look out, you were uh, thinking about what's been happening in markets, talking about the potential for a V-shaped recovery. What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, so I, my biggest thought right now is about what I would call the trifecta of energy, equities, and the dollar. And to a certain degree, you could also add in uh, corporate bonds as well. In terms of they're moving in the same sink, which shows that there is a bid for a V-shaped recovery. And by that, I mean that what we saw today in the markets, when the markets were opening up, there was a very negative pattern to things. Equities were down, the futures were down, oil was down, and the dollar was up. And then as the market turned around, all of those things reversed. And that's because all of those are leveraged to the concept that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. And so I think that what we're seeing is, is, is that the, the sell-off last week really wasn't a fundamental sell-off. It was, maybe you can call it a technical sell-off. It was, there were oversold levels, uh, people were uh, spooked. There was a reason to just uh, take profits. And now we're back to a situation where basically those three trends that I talked about, the dollar not going higher, but actually going lower, equities uh, rallying, and also energy going back to rallying, those are back intact. Yeah. And you also cited uh, Morgan Stanley's uh, sort of restatement of the potential for V-shaped recovery. Yes. And, you know, one of the catalysts today was the Fed getting into the corporate bond space. So I thought that was interesting. If you recall, I guess it was many months ago, I was talking about HYG versus LQD. And my thesis was at the time that the Fed was giving a basically complete backstop to LQD, which is the investment grade uh, space for corporate bonds, but HYG, less of a backstop. I mean, there is some for fallen angels in the ETF there, but what we've seen actually today, LQD, uh, the corporate bond space, uh, rallied to a record level. So it's it's regained all of its gains from the March uh, lows that we, we saw before, and that's because the Fed came out and reiterated its guidance that it is going to have the secondary market corporate credit facility to buy individual corporate bonds, not just the ETFs, yeah. which uh, had been their buying strategy up until this point, but also uh, it's they're going to actually buy individual names. Yeah, and that was the incremental news of the day, that they were going to start stepping into the individual corporate credit market. Of course, that facility, three quarters of a trillion dollars, $750 billion. Right. Yeah. And the the so I think that that's uh, that's all very good for the market. Uh, the market is saying all of the things that you need to have in place. Liquidity is there. Uh, you know, we saw the New York Empire manufacturing numbers come out. They were really good uh, from a very negative print. They went to almost flat. So all things are saying that the V-shaped recovery story is still intact. It, it can happen. Uh, and, and so I think the market is, is happy with that. Yeah. Now, an important point on the, uh, on, that enterprise, on, the, uh, on the Empire State survey, again, we're measuring the second derivative there. So it's like I'm borrowing 50 bucks from you every week. Uh, suddenly I owe you $800. And I say, great news, Ed. I'm flat on the week. I'm not borrowing anymore. Right. So we still need to see many more months. So when I say that the uh, the V-shaped recovery can happen, what I really mean by that, if you parse my language, is, is I'm not saying it will happen. It's rather that the data flow suggests 
that we still are en route to a V-shaped recovery if there are no hiccups going forward, which, it, you know, that caveat, if there are no hiccups going forward, is the big caveat because we're we're in the early innings of the, the reopening, the actual data for the reopening. So just to sort of back up, basically, we had a phase shift. The phase shift is really that we're moving from the reopening as a perspective event to the reopening as a, an actual event. Data flows coming in after the reopening has happened. And so now we're going to see uh, some volatility associated with that as people start to recalibrate what that means for the the way that the market's priced, which is generally for V-shaped recovery. Right. So, Ed, you're taking a very careful look, and you've just explained a, a very careful analysis of the fundamental economic data aspect of this. We were also talking a little bit earlier uh, about the piece that Katie Stockton did with Danielle DiMartino Booth on Real Vision, where she took more of a technical analysis perspective. And we were talking a little bit about sector rotation. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that what we saw, or what we saw today at least, is, is a, a rotation back into the same old, the things, the leaders that we saw before. Um, that was what we saw during the downdraft. But as we picked up, what I did notice is, is that the Russell 2000 outperformed. Uh, it actually was up more than uh, the NASDAQ today. So I don't really have any views as to whether or not there's any fundamental move uh, from today, but I know what Katie Stockton was talking about is is that over, uh, you know, in terms of the momentum from a technical analysis perspective, it doesn't seem like there's any longer term rotation into value from growth. That people are still looking for growth over value, and you know the way that I would uh, look at this has to do with things like the Calpers announcement that I think I showed yeah. you earlier today. Um, you know, where basically Calpers. <laughs> they said that they were going to move deeper into private equity, into private debt, and that the reason that they're doing that is they wanted to help achieve their 7% bogey. They have a 7% uh, return rate, which is very high given how much, um, you know, how low bond prices are. So they really have to get a lot of return out of private equity, private debt, and equities in order to be able to justify that 7% blended number that they're talking about. And so they're going to be using lots of leverage there. And so to me, that's a growth story. That says growth over value. What they're saying is, is that we're going to go out the risk spectrum. We're going to load up on leverage, get into private debt, in order to make our 7% bogey. And I think that a lot of people are in that same boat right now, that this is what's driving growth. It is the fact that when yields go down, you really need to have growth to sustain the type of returns that you want to see going forward and uh, to be able to justify, especially if you're a pension company, your actuarial accounting that says that you know, you're fully funded. You know, Ed, that's such an interesting point, and that's such a, an important connection that you just drew. You know, Katie Stockton's point, is, as I understood it, was that she said that there's been a slight bit of pullback uh, from the growth uh, sector into value, and that she actually sees this as refreshing the growth trend going forward. But the, the, the important point you just made about this Calper story, and, and this is really an important one, uh, it suggests, and I'm, I'm really curious to hear more of your analysis on this, you know, basically the big picture uh, here is that CalPERS has this very, uh, very lofty 7% uh, 
return target. And the reason that they have this target, it's important to point out, some people may know, others may not, is because they have about 2 million uh, public uh, employees whose pension obligations they need to meet. These are police officers, firefighters, other public employees. And so effectively, they've decided, well, in order to get that target, we're going to have to just move out the risk spectrum. Uh, we're not going to cut our expectations. We're not going to we're not going to announce that there are going to be challenges meeting them. We're just going to be more aggressive in our investment portfolio. And as you suggested, at exactly, uh, it seems to suggest that they're going to be moving more toward a growth rather than value mindset. I'm curious what you think that is uh, in in terms of the potential for risk. Where do you see that? I see it as a as a, a very risky strategy. I mean, let's look at it from a positive perspective. Uh, the first thing is is if you think about the retirement crisis. Uh, we did a whole week, two weeks of that earlier in the year. And I spoke to a lot of money managers. Actually, I also spoke to a, a pension guy, uh, um, Leo Kolovakis, who follows the Canadian pension companies. And basically the story is, is that the Canadian pension companies moved into things like private equity. Uh, they, they stopped farming out all of their private equity to uh, other outside sources, and they brought it in-house. They brought the expertise in-house, saved themselves money. You know, they were more the patient money. So the positive story there is, is, is that, you know, they're going to be cutting fees, and ultimately that means that their return will be better. Uh, percentages, basis points better, 10, 20, 30, who knows how many basis points they'll save as a result of not having those fees. But the downside, as you said, is the risk that they're taking. Um, that they are essentially leveraging up. Uh, it, it's not that they're necessarily bringing things uh, that were outside in-house, it's that they're revamping their strategy to, to really boost up their private uh, debt, their private lending strategy in order to make their returns. And I might add, you know, the Financial Times was all over this today. They were saying that CalPERS, their assets represent just 71% of what's needed to pay uh, future benefits. So that means they're 29% underfunded. And so when you think about what their strategy is in terms of getting that 7% bogey, it's not what the Canadians are doing. What the Canadians are doing is just trying to get themselves to fully funded and doing all sorts of prudent management things in order to make sure that they remain fully funded. What CalPERS is doing is, is they're saying, you know, in a, a market that's already basically overbought, uh, we're going to risk, we're going to say that the V-shaped recovery is going to happen, we're going to leverage up, and we're going to say the 7% bogey is totally doable over the next cycle, because we have to, we have no other choice. Yeah, and that 71% underfunded uh, figure that you cite, of course, is based on their future liabilities uh, to meet those pensions and other obligations. Right, 29% underfunded, 71% of the assets that they have, which yeah. is, you know, a massive uh, disparity. And the the obvious answer would be to uh, do something in order to make sure that that disparity goes away. You can cut future benefits. You can uh, uh, do something in terms of topping up the, the amount that's necessary, all sorts of other things. But instead, they're shooting for the moon, and uh, we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, here's the quote that jumped out at me from the FT. Mr. Meng, this is the CIO of CalPERS, has faced criticism this year for banding a hedging strategy for tail risk, the risk of low probability but highly costly events before the market crash in March. So we are heading into a tail risk period. And, right. 
And yet, uh, Mr. Meng, it seems, believes that they can accumulate additional tail risk, raise the rate of return um, without having a catastrophic event. Right. And, and so that's the part that I would focus on. And, you know, in the same article, and I'm looking at that right now, it says Mr. Meng has terminated relationships with more than 30 external fund managers since 2019, redeploying $64 billion of capital with savings of more than $115 million in annual fees. So that's what I was talking about, moving the expertise in-house. Right. But rather than focus on the savings that you get there, I'm much more concerned about uh, his leverage strategy, his uh, shoot for the moon, his growth strategy. And I think this is what's underpinning the the continued uh, momentum of growth over value, even though there might be some uh, marginal gains here and there in value. Uh, at, uh, people are really looking for growth. Well, you know, that's exactly right. And, and mirrors my thinking as well. You know, we're talking about this because it's an interesting story in itself, because CalPERS is obviously an enormous fund, but also because it serves as a metaphor, I think, for some of the other things that we're seeing in the market from other large investors and other, uh, one might even say smaller investors having similar feelings of reaching and reaching and reaching. Some might say, uh, perhaps even Danielle DiMartino Booth might say, this is very much by design. The Fed has created a regime where people have to reach for yield. They have to reach and they have to support and they have to push up asset prices because they're simply not getting any of that yield that they need to meet anywhere near a 7% obligation, uh, for example, in US treasuries. We're, no, we're nowhere close. That spread just diverges and diverges, gets broader and wider by the day. Well, you know, the problem with that approach is, is what you would call zombie companies. There was a great article today uh, by Diane Rabwain, who is at Axios, talking about the number, or the, what I would say, the percentage of zombie companies, uh, soon to be 20%. I think it's now 18.9%. And when I use the term zombie, what I mean is uh, the number of companies that have debt servicing costs that are higher than their profits. And basically, the only reason they're kept alive is, is by you know rolling over their debt by refunding. And we've seen $1 trillion in issuance already in the first half of 2020. So what you're seeing is a massive piling in uh, to corporate uh, debt, uh, people you know, refunding themselves. 20% uh, of those companies are zombies, and the Fed is buying up uh, corporate bonds, not just ETFs, but individual names in order to facilitate that, to keep those yields down. And what that does is, is it means that these less efficient companies, these companies that in another situation would be bankrupt or would face problems, maybe they would become fallen angels even, uh, that the Fed has already said, not only will we buy the ETFs and the individual names, but even if they become fallen angels, we'll buy these companies, we'll buy their debt. That means that these less efficient companies are, are, are kept alive in a way that causes the economy to not be as, pro, you know, as 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 uh, good as yeah. to growth to be as high as it could be otherwise. Well, you know, that brings me back to a point that you've talked about before, which is Japan uh, and whether or not that effectively becomes a Japanification potentially of uh, some large U.S. corporates. Right. Yeah. And so then the question for you, Ash, is if you're going to get a Japanification, which basically means low nominal uh, growth. Okay, so low inflation 
and also low real growth, adding up to low nominal growth, how in the hell are you going to get a 7% bogey uh, return unless you get it through some sort of uh, you know, earnings multiple expansion, right? Because to a certain degree, you're, you're basically buying into the, the nominal growth of, of the economy. And if the, the policy mix is creating nominal growth that is being compressed, it's very difficult, therefore, to say that the CalPERS regime is the right one. Really, it shouldn't be 7%. Uh, you know, if their bogey should have been 6.5% and, and they had it at 7 I say it's going down to 6 and 5.5%. So they're even more underfunded in reality if you think about the types of returns that they're going to get over the next decade than the 71% would suggest. If their bogey is actually really 6% and not 7%. Yeah. And I suppose the other option, if you were, as you game them out, Ed, is the, the potential for direct central bank support of public pension funds. Right. I mean, eventually, uh, the, I think the, the, the situation that we're in now is one in which people are saying, look, uh, bad things have happened, but the policy stimulus is there to say that we will always, at every step along the way, take the worst cases off the table. We will not allow worst case scenarios to happen. And let's just say that that's, that, that's the right uh, way to look at it. The question then becomes, how do you justify asset prices um, yeah. in that scenario when it causes nominal growth to, to go down? And I find it very difficult over the long term to justify those asset prices. But that doesn't mean that you know asset prices aren't going to rally. It doesn't mean that equities aren't going to continue to rally until we get to the September-October timeframe that I'm talking about. Because right now, we're in a situation where we don't have any forward guidance. And so we're, we're collecting the data points now to find out what kind of recovery we're going to have. Yeah, and you've just alluded to something that we've talked about before and is very important, which is it depends upon the time horizon you're looking at. We've said this before with U.S. equity markets. We can you know, reaffirm it now uh, across asset classes. When you're looking at markets and we're, we're talking about our views, it's very important to understand the time frame that's involved. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, right in that last paragraph of speaking, I talked about three different paragraphs or three different time frames. We're talking yes. about, you know, the long term for CalPERS over the next decade. We're talking about the medium term of the economy after 2020. We're talking 2021, 2022. And then we're talking about the immediate future over the next uh, several weeks as the data start to come out for Q2 and, and gives us a sense of, okay, what is Q2 and Q3? What do they look like? And, and, and those are very discrete time frames. Yeah. You know, talking of time frames, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I obviously took a couple of days off. You know, I, I play a slightly different role uh, than you and Rao and Roger do. You guys all have research products that you're thinking about. You have a stated view. I don't. I look at things more like a journalist would. And, and sometimes that's an advantage and sometimes it's a disadvantage. It allows you to think in a slightly different way. In the last couple of days, what I've been thinking about is the time horizons that we're looking at, which is, plays into the last point that you made. So one of the things that I get concerned about when we focus on either technical factors uh, or even fundamental data about economic reopening is the potential that these, what we're looking at here, are trailing indicators. And I did a little bit of thought over the weekend. Um, you know, let's just take big picture. Sometimes you get really close to things and it's easy to, to lose track, lose the forest for the trees, so to speak. So look, we were at an intraday high on 19 February of 3393 in the S&P. 
on March 7th, I remember the day very clearly, I went to a birthday party. Everything was lovely. And then on March 11th, about 100 hours later, the WHO declared, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic emergency with coronavirus. On 20 March, New York City goes into lockdown, what then became uh, and what has since been to date, at least uh, the greatest area of concentration, ground zero for the US coronavirus pandemic. Deaths began rising dramatically in the tri-state area, great human tragedy. And then the S&P predictably plunged dramatically. We blew through every moving average on the way down. And on 23 March, uh, the S&P reached an intraday low post-crisis of 2191. Since then, we've been seeing this recovery phase. This is something that Raul has talked about, the idea that you have uh, a, a liquidity event, a hope phase, and then potentially an insolvency event that comes next. So we look at like where we were. Peak to trough, that was about almost exactly 33% of the value on the S&P, 33.9%. And, and, and now on, on 8 June, which happened to be last Monday, we reached a, a post-crisis intraday high of 32.33, some whatever it is, 160 points below the high. Now, last week, we had an interesting week. It obviously started out on a high post-crisis. Uh, and then we saw a pretty dramatic uh, sell-off. Uh, you know, we got bad economic data. We got bad coronavirus case data. Jay Powell came out and said, look, this could be a long, slow road. Everyone kind of take a deep breath. On Thursday, the Dow gets gets uh, cratered about 7%. Uh, U.S. equity mark, uh, uh, indices sell off about 2 to 5% on the week. But what is driving all this? What are the core commonalities that we have across that time horizon? It's very difficult to attribute market moves. And we hear it all the time on financial television where people say X happened and therefore uh, stocks went down or up Y percent. But we we have a very good sense this time around that what's driving this sell-off and then the recovery, it's all about the coronavirus pandemic. Fears of the coronavirus pandemic pushed us down about a third. And then as the reopening or optimism phase began, the hope phase, to use Rao's terminology, the recovery began in earnest. Now, what's interesting today is to look around over the last few days and to look at the data coming out about the virus. That's the thing that I think is going to be most important over the next over the next seven to ten days. It's great to see that the Empire Manufacturing Index has recovered from being negative to being basically flat. But where we stand with this virus and as we begin to reopen is going to be absolutely critical. I think we're in the domain of the epidemiologist. We're going to be looking at what happens to those growth numbers. We're seeing uh, new highs in Florida, Texas, uh, and California. These are the three most populous states in the country. This is really where the risk is to this market, in my view, at least. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, to play devil's advocate, I would say that you could make the claim that we're in the same situation that, say, the, the Germans were in when uh, their R factor went above one when they did their reopening. Uh, so that what we're seeing now in the United States are is the hiccup that you have when you first reopen, but it's not an indication of what the longer term will be. You know, a market could uh, internalize that kind of logic until you get many data points in a row. So even though uh, the COVID-19 case count, the hospitalization rate is going up, uh, you have to see the trend go up to some level at which point, you know, the, the narrative uh, just collapses on, on its own and you have to build a new narrative. 
So I think that we're still in a point where we have several more weeks of data that we have to see. You'd yeah. have to see hospitals get overwhelmed. You'd have to see localized uh, shutdowns. And then you'd have to see a consumer behavior change in order for people to say, wait a minute, hold on. I guess this isn't going to be an entirely V-shaped recovery. And right. to me, that's a, a sort of process that happens over weeks and months as opposed to days. Yeah, I would agree with that in terms of your time horizon. But devil's advocate to devil's advocate, Ed, is it not just completely unknown to know what the trajectory of this is going to be in the Western states, in Florida, in places where the disease has risen very dramatically? We've seen this local hotspot phenomenon uh, time and time again in Europe, in Asia, in the US. If we get a second phase, uh, or perhaps even a first wave, I guess might be the correct term, in these places where the uh, population has been naive from an antibody perspective. Is it not possible that we could see this spike? And if that does happen, it could dramatically impact the reopening process. Well, to reframe what you're saying, uh, I think that what you're, you're saying is you're pointing to um, downside risk. Yeah. When you think of that scenario, and let's call that the negative economic scenario, or right. the deeply negative economic scenario, the question then becomes, how much of that's priced in? Yes. Uh, what's priced in? So if I'm telling you that the market as it stands today, risk assets, we're talking about corporate bonds, we're talking about oil prices, we're talking about equities, and certainly high yield as well, they're priced for largely a V-shaped recovery. Yes. And, and and then you have to model out what the risk dispersion is. I would offer that there's not a whole lot of upside. That is, is that most of the risk is to the downside. So the scenario that you painted out is a possible scenario. And there aren't many scenarios that are better than the V-shaped recovery that's being priced in by markets. So markets are mostly uh, seeing downside risk going forward. And so, yes, if you look at the probabilities, with your outcome that that presents uh, asset markets with a threat. Yeah, and, um, and and to your point, yes, it does seem to be priced uh, for the rosiest scenario, which is the V-shaped recovery. And the terminal point of that, um, you know, if you look at the pricing of the S and P on Monday, it suggested that we were very near uh, to all-time highs. And this is just, and I should point out, uh, this is just totally unknown, right? That's the that's the factor here that we just can't price. There's no way of really understanding what that risk is uh, to the real economy uh, and to human life and also to the animal spirits uh, of the economy if there is a dramatic spike in those places that we haven't experienced it. You know, I, I was out this weekend uh, here in New York City and I was walking down Second Avenue with a friend uh, here on the Upper East Side where there are obviously shops and cafes and restaurants. And the street was so dense with people that we actually moved on to another block. That's the number of people who we see out on the street. You know, you've had uh, all of these uh, folks in their, uh, in their 20s. Uh, not long ago, that was you and me, Ed, living in uh, 250, 300 square foot studio apartments all spring locked up. And they were out uh, having hamburgers, drinking beer, having a great time. What impact that kind of uh, that kind of close personal interaction as the weather warms is going to have uh, on the trajectory of the virus? Totally unknown. We, we don't really know. Uh, you, you were on vacation and we were talking uh, about Neil Ferguson. He was talking to Larry McDonald yeah. about how these pandemics uh, form over time. And what we've seen time and time again is it's not a one season and you're done type of thing. They happen over a longer period of time. 
uh, you know, 18 months, 24 months. So even the case that you're talking about, uh, where there's a second wave, really, worth you, we should be thinking about um, February and March 2021 and, and beyond, because we, we really do not know what's going to happen with the virus. We have no idea what's going to happen with the vaccine, herd immunity, all of these, these concepts. So, right. you know, we're, we're, let's just see what happens. We have no idea. All I know is, is when I think about markets and market risk, I think about the dispersion of different probabilities, different outcomes. And right. most of the probabilities that I see in the, the near to medium term show risk to the downside. Yes. And very few of them show upside potential. So yep. it, it, when you see that kind of skew, it's not something that makes you really excited to jump into the market head first. Right. Downside uh, dispersion and markets not priced for it. Exactly. So that that's that's what I'm seeing now. It doesn't mean that, that markets can't and won't rally. I don't think that there's any fundamental catalyst for the sell-off that we saw just recently. Eventually, the data is going to catch up to us. We'll find out what the answer is. And as I've said repeatedly over these past few days, I'm looking at the September, October timeframe as the markets coming to Jesus moment. That's when we're going to find out what the real story is going to be. When we get the data on, on actual economic output and also when we have time to see what happens with the cases that are now forming. Right. And uh, most importantly for equities, that's when we'll also see uh, companies start to update us on their 2021 earnings outlooks because that's uh, you know that's very important for forward-looking guidance uh, once we have now fully reopened. And I'll throw in one more: the roll-off of the Paycheck Protection Program. Yes, all of those things are going to be coming together. And and you know um, the, the the Trump administration has said that they're not going to give. You know, uh, Larry Kudlow says we're not going to give the six hundred dollars a, a month uh, or a week anymore. It's going to it's going to end. So there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty going forward, and most of that uncertainty is not now. It's into the immediate future, August, September, and then October. That's when we're going to see what the answer is. Just before the U.S. election, I might add, which adds another degree of uncertainty as well. So it'll be a very exciting time. September and October will be really interesting. Lots of lines to intersect. Ed, thank you for joining us. It was good talking to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.